Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. This week, we're thinking about data and the staggering amount of it that's being generated, shared, collected, and analyzed. And one area where this is playing out in very interesting ways these days is in our health. From electronic health records to wearable devices, we know more than ever about our personal health, our genetic makeup, and our aggregate health habits as a population. There's a lot of power in having access to all this information, but of course, as Spider-Man has taught us, with great power comes great responsibility. What is our collective responsibility to use all this data on our health in effective yet ethically appropriate ways? Well, John Wilbanks has been thinking about this professionally for some time now. In his role at Sage BioNetworks, he's in charge of figuring out how to design policies and technologies that allow health and biological data to be broadly shared between patients, clinicians, and data analysts to help drive innovations in healthcare. He sat down recently with Continuum's Mike Dunkley, Senior Vice President of Medical, to discuss health data and the competing factors of privacy, research, and innovation. Let's listen. So I'm delighted to be joined uh, today by John Wilbanks. John is the Chief Commons Officer at Sage Bionetworks. Um, hi, John. Hi, nice to see you. Yeah, absolutely. So, so John, um, I, I don't think a, a day goes by where I don't hear some reference to data. I feel like uh, you know we're living in this kind of age of ubiquitous data, um, and you know there's I guess there's many estimates of what that means. But you know IBM puts this this figure out that there's 2.5 quintillion bytes of data generated a day. I don't even know what a quintillion is, but it kind of sounds sounds large. Um, and I know you know through through my work and through Continuum's work in, in medical um, and healthcare spheres that this is you know highly relevant to healthcare research and hopefully uh, medical treatments of the future. Can you maybe just give us some color in terms of, uh, you know, how you see data and specifically, you know, its role in, uh, in the advancement of biomedical research? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I get nervous when I see marketing numbers about data because I feel like they're designed to scare us. Um, and so quintillion is like a geologic scale number, right? It's almost designed to make us feel tiny and unable to comprehend in comparison, I think. Um, you know, in the context of health, I, I sort of feel the same way about this uh, in and out of health, uh, which is that we've always had data. It's just that data used to be really expensive to get and really difficult to analyze because it was you know, in the wrong container. It was in paper for the most part. Um, and so we would write down data in notebooks. Uh, we would write down data on papers. We would describe it through language. And the big thing that's different now is that you know over the last 30 years, we've started to be able to store that data, to write that data down in formats that are you know larger, more scalable, faster, and so forth. And at the same time, we've gotten better able to capture it um, more cheaply, more more uh, more flexibly. And so in health. You know, you've gone from data being uh, the stuff the doctor wrote down when you went to the doctor once or twice a year or, or more if you're unlucky um, and filed on paper in paper filing cabinets. And that, that's now right. Those very bits of pieces of paper have become electronic health records for better or for worse. And on top of that, we can gather data about our health through you know any number of thousands of devices 
or interfaces that, that can be used to infer things about our health. And that you know, ranges from our phones to wearables, obviously, but all the way to the information that we type in our devices through email can tell you an awful lot about someone's cognition and mood. So to me, the, the, it's not that data has entered the space, it's that the, the very containers that we used to put data in that kept it human scale, those containers have been blown to bits. And we're trying to pick up the pieces and figure out what to do in, 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 the, in the aftermath of blowing those containers to bits. Right. So you mentioned in there, of course, that the abundance of, you know, principally physiometric data that you can you can gather via, you know, mobile tools and, and wearables and the like. And also, you know, I guess data that, that you could input in terms of search queries and the uh, and similar. Um, what you left off um, was genomic data. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that's, I mean, it's clearly part of this picture, right? Yeah, well, in, and in some ways, DNA is the ultimate data container, right? It's, it's probably the most effective information compression tool that, that, that we have uh, discovered on this planet. We certainly didn't invent it. But um, I, I leave that out a little bit because it's so hard still to connect it to, to health. Um, we have such a small number of genes where we actually know what the health impact is, and and we usually don't know what to do, even if we know that. And so, to me, I, I sort of I draw a, a somewhat arbitrary line between health and research, which is, you know, to me, we can use the stuff that comes off of our devices for health really quickly, um, and. The, the ability to do the same thing for genes is going to take a lot more research because we just we, we sort of we know what DNA is we know how the A's the T's the C's the G's uh, fit together uh, we have some good models for what happens when you create mutations in those things but you know fundamentally it's um, it's it's so hard to make a declarative statement about what DNA does or doesn't do for a given human. Um, that I, I, I often leave it out a little bit now. And it's funny because I started out thinking that that was everything. And the, uh, the, the farther I get into this, the more convinced I am that our choices and our environment and our um, uh, the built environment and the chosen environment, those things are just uh, are much closer to health. Um, my hope is certainly that we can draw these two things together. That's, that's sort of what my day job is all about, is trying to find ways to do that. Um, but I, I, I do somewhat arbitrarily segment, you know, we need to do tons of research on genes. Uh, but in terms of what we can use data for today for our health, uh, in a lot of cases, that's going to be the sort of stuff that we can measure around our environment and our lifestyles. Right. So, so what do you see then as, as, the, as the vision here and maybe what does success look like if we're, if we're, you know, collecting the right types of data and looking at it in the right kinds of way? I mean, where's that going to take us? There's a lot of debate on that topic and and I am one of the less qualified people in this in this industry that you'll run into to, to opine on it but it's never stopped me before so I'll, I'll give it a shot I mean I, uh, I I tend to think that when it comes to healthcare that uh, I, I sort of buy into Tim O'Reilly's comments that this is like advertising he called it the Wanamaker problem in advertising which is this guy Wanamaker said I know half my advertising works the problem is I don't know which half and that's how healthcare feels like, which is that, you know, we know that most drugs only work in half to 60% of the people who take them, but it's hard for us to tell ahead of time which half you're in. Um, it's hard for us to tell ahead of time whether or not a lot of procedures are going to help for people. And in many cases, we know they won't help, but we give them anyway. A lot of back surgeries, right. for example. So 
I think the, the, the vision is to start bringing some of this data to bear in a way that lets us personalize our healthcare so that we don't do things that are probabilistically likely to hurt us uh, and that we can make good choices about the things where it's debatable whether or not it's going to help us. Um, my, my, that's sort of my hope and my vision. My, my fear is that it winds up looking like web advertising where as soon as I buy a wallet on Amazon for the next two weeks, I get ads chasing me saying, would you like to buy another wallet? No, like I just bought a damn wallet. And so um, you know, precision advertising is a lesson uh, and, a, and a caution for precision medicine in many cases in that we can target individuals, right? You can find me, you know, a mid-40s white dude in suburban D.C. Like, you can get an ad in front of me, but a lot of times that ad sucks and it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And so... So it's, it's, it, it's uh, important to, to distinguish between precision and accuracy, that's right, right, in that regard. That's right. right. So I think that's, that's the hope. And that, that, that's why I think a lot of this is, is happening is a general sense that... Um, we basically throw darts at the dartboard with a blindfold on right now. And so using this data and some statistical modeling and machine learning um, has to be better than that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's about as, as, that, that's about as core of a philosophical principle as you'll find in a lot of the precision medicine conversations is it is so bad now that it has to get better if we use the data better. And so in many ways, mm -hmm. the debate is not over if that presumption is true or false, but how to get there. Uh, what's the vision technically? What's the vision scientifically? Right, right. What's the vision socially? Uh, and what's the vision ethically? But presumably by, you know, get there, you mean we're at a point where not only um, are we able to predict, you know, someone's risk with, with respect to, say, a particular health condition, but also identify, you know, the underlying causes, whether they're, you know, uh, activity, lifestyle, environmentally, or even genetic, you know, genetically are related, um, and then importantly, right, do something, you know, intervene in a way, which is either curative, hopefully, right, or at least, um, you know, supporting in terms of maybe alleviating, alleviating symptoms or the like. I mean, that 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 is the the, the goal, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's the goal at an individual level, and then. At a population level, we also would like to understand sort of you know, population health better. And, and if this works right, right, if we do this right, we ought to be able to get both of those more or less at the same time because having lots of well-understood individuals should let us make much better predictions about the population as a group or dem demographic groups uh, or niches, if you will. And so um, that's the goal, right? And, and, and that could be really great, right? It, it would be great if we understood that... Um, you know, for an individual, whether or not to prescribe them exercise, right, and maybe some incentives versus prescribing them a drug for something, you know, cardiac disease or diabetes. Um, that's the dream, right? You know, and then that comes with risks, right? For example, do we have uh, redlining in health like we have redlining in real estate where if you're from a poor neighborhood, you get McDonald's coupons and a diabetes drug at half price. And if you live in a wealthy neighborhood, you get a Fitbit and a break on your insurance for hitting 10,000 steps a day. Um, just because the machines say that those are the cures that are likely to work in those two areas. Right. Um, but the benefit, the potential benefit's enormous. And, and mm -hmm. ideally, if you could, in a dream world, again, you can extrapolate from those precision individual elements to more of a population level and say, you know what, uh, we should actually be spending money to keep people in school. Because the number one determinant factor for health is education. So maybe we should be giving incentives to high schools and middle schools and elementary schools to keep kids enrolled 
um, hmm. because that appears to be the best upstream intervention as opposed to trying to treat you know diabetes and obesity and other kinds of things when they come down the line 15 16 years later right you know that's a pretty um that's a pretty wild vision um certainly when you um an, an intriguing vision certainly when you look at just the complexities of dealing with you know the healthcare system itself yet alone you know bringing education and other kind of more societal things in but feels like a much bigger discussion so so where would you know where would you um you know place your money in terms of the the areas of health that are, are most likely to benefit you know so clearly there's like those areas which are large and have significant areas of unmet need and there are you know also those that potentially uh, where data has a, a a role which hasn't quite been fulfilled yet so so you know what most excites you in terms of those maybe disease areas or, or problem areas that, that, that this is going to be able to tackle well, I'm, I'm biased by my experience, uh, especially at SAGE over the last several years. Uh, but I think, you know, clearly um, when it comes to sort of consumer-grade devices that are in people's houses, there's a lot of good work to be done in neurodegeneration because the sensors that are on your phone, right, doesn't require – you don't have to buy an, another wearable. You can really get at things like Tremor. Uh, just mm -hmm. using the accelerometer and the gyroscope that take you from landscape to portrait, right? That lets you measure hand tremor. Um, it lets you measure gait, balance, uh, all of those things. You can use the touch screen to do cognition, um, tapping dexterity, right? Uh, you can use the microphone to get muscle tone and, and, and lung capacity. And, and so, you know, neurodegeneration is, a, is, a, is just a natural for, for just the phone itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited about that in the short term um, because we've had some success at that in a Parkinson's study and, and other things that we've done at Sage. Um, coming the other way from yeah, and I, and, I, and I wanted to talk to you about that. I think you're referencing the Empower yeah. study, right? Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about that specifically. Yeah, sure. And I'll, so I'll, we can come back to that. Um, on the on the genetic side, I think uh, we're starting to understand cancer um, more structurally, and and you know the hope was that cancer would look something like. Uh, Newtonian physics and, and it would be relatively straight ahead and you'd have a few laws of thermodynamics and, and it would work and, and what we're finding is that it looks much more complicated than that but um, certainly with immunotherapy and and some of the some of the genomic the federal and, and, and international uh, public genomic work beginning to hit um, uh, sort of uh, tipping points or or, or you know, moments where there's enough information to start to do really interesting stuff. I think cancer is going to be very different in 10 years than it is today. And, and I think we'll understand neurodegeneration really well. Um, you know, and then I think the thing that's not here that's going to be here within a couple of years is, um, is, is beginning to get at cardiac health. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, that's going to really require the kind of sensors that are in the Apple Watch becoming commodity products. So if you can do blood pressure, pulse oximetry, uh, heart rate, um, then you can pair that with a phone and ask people to do things like take a six-minute walk and see, you know, did your, how did your blood pressure and heart rate change? And you can do that pretty non-invasively. Um, and so I think as those, uh, that, that's, the, that's the, the thing that I think is most ripe for change because the convergence of sensors, uh, hardware price, software, battery time, and form factor in a watch, right? That's, that's all sort of converging down to the wrist. And, and when that happens, you'll be able to do cardiac the way that you do neurodegeneration now. Um, the other sort of big ones, I think, are mood. 
Um, you can do a ton with a phone on Mood. Uh, it can be kind of creepy, but, uh, it, but you can do a ton there. Um, and then uh, sleep is the other big one, I think, that, you know, and these are the simplest things, right? It's, you know, the, the answers are going to be the most basic things, but the way that we sleep, the way that we eat, the way that we move, right, those have a tremendous effect on us. And, and it's one of the areas where sort of separating health from life has probably done us a disservice because, you know, my doctor um, doesn't ask me how well I'm sleeping, you know, but if I've got headaches and I'm not eating well and I'm irritable all the time, you know, generally if I, if I do my own tracking, it almost always means that I'm not sleeping very well and I'm not exercising very much, but my doctor doesn't ask me that. Um, the healthcare system doesn't reimburse my doctor for uh, helping me sleep more. Right, unless they give me a drug, which is, you know, not the ideal scenario. It'd certainly be, uh, you know, exciting to, I, I think, for a lot of people to realize that, you know, some of the health outcomes that they previously felt maybe they didn't have control over, they they maybe do have control over through simple kind of lifestyle adjustments. I can certainly personally relate to that. Yeah, I mean, sleep maybe, sleep is, uh, you know, the I, I I got into this field. 16, 17 years ago, and I was convinced the answers were genetic and, and, and medical. And uh, you know, the farther I get into it, the more I realize how much we don't have control over and how much the basics of you know, eat right, exercise, sleep, you know, be surrounded by people that you, that you can talk to. Like, those things make a much bigger difference in my life. Right? I actually take less medicine than I used to. Uh, precisely because of that, and and you know, and we need drugs. We need drugs for cancer. We need drugs for Alzheimer's disease, right? Um, but uh, but we're we're so bad at finding those drugs <laughs> right now that the number one things you can do to take care of yourself are those. Like I, I have a I have a lot of the mutations that indicate prostate cancer, um, and so I've been going around. I've been showing my genome in public for six years, seven years, maybe mm -hmm. eight. And asking people, what should I do? And, and, and the only consensus, I've to, I to talked to you know, cancer specialists, geneticists, bioinformaticists, you know, heads of major clinical systems, and the only thing they come back with is eat less and exercise. It's depressing. <laughs> John, let, let's, uh, let's move the conversation on and, and talk maybe a little bit uh, more about what Sage Bionetworks is doing, particularly in the context of you know, data privacy, data ownership, and maybe you could you know, introduce us to why Sage is different and, and contrast it with maybe how, how things have happened um, in the past and certainly continue to happen in other, in other models. Sure. Um, so we're different on a lot of different fronts. First of all, our business model is different. We're a, we're a nonprofit uh, medical research organization. Um, and simply the fact that we're a nonprofit as opposed to being a regular venture-backed org or a, even a B Corp or some of these you know, hybrid social good uh, corporations, you know, we, we have to make enough money to pay our bills, but we don't have to ever give any of the money that we raise back, uh, much less with a zero added to it. And that allows us to be much more um, participant-centered. We don't have to sell data to make money. And it allows us to really experiment with models that, that, that change ownership. Um, so you know, anyone who participates in, in our public-facing research kit studies, uh, which are all run through mobile phones, they, they are the owners of their data. They decide to share it with us as our perspective. Um, they get a full copy of their data back if they want to. And then they can tell us if they want us to keep their data inside the study, which is the traditional way of doing things, 
or if they'd like us to create a third copy, in addition to the study copy and, and the participants copy, uh, they can order us to make a third copy and donate it to science uh, outside the study. And that's pretty new. Uh, we've been in negotiations with lots of general counsels for uh, academic medical centers and uh, for-profit uh, research groups that sort of think that's a pretty weird uh, way to do things. Um, but, but we think that that really changes the, the structure of how we treat data and the way that we treat the insights in, in that, that getting your data back ought to be one of the rewards you get for being in a study. It ought to be one of the benefits. Um, and getting knowledge back uh, from the people who are looking at your date, uh, data ought to be one of the other benefits to being in a study. Um, the traditional health study is sort of like an oil well where you, know, you show up, they extract the data from you, and then you go away, and no one ever tells you what happened or if you helped anyone or anything. And just as the capacity to – we started this conversation talking about how much cheaper it was to get data than it used to be. That was like my first point. The fact that we can go directly to people through their phones or their computers to enroll them in these studies means that we can change the cost structure of these studies. We can change the scale of these studies. You know, a big study is 2,000 people. That's absurd, right? Like, you could never get an app uh, off the ground even with your own credit cards with 2,000 users. But we think somehow that 2,000 people is an appropriate number to make multi-hundred million dollar decisions about drugs. Right? It's a direct line from the small sample size in clinical studies to the Wanamaker problem in health. And so if we're going to make that jump, there's an opportunity to change the entire engagement model. Because what I don't want to do is adopt the sort of Google, Amazon model where you're basically a little data farmer giving your data to the big company who gives you a free service back in, in return. Going, you know, People like to say data is the new oil. Well. The way Google works is we give them the oil for free and then we buy the gas back with our attention. And the hope is so, to change that in health because that's that's not a yeah, deal yeah. I want to import. Yeah, so, so um, I, I think you refer to this this approach like as a medical commons, if I'm right. And and the, uh, I'm, I'm, ta I'm, I'm getting that there's, there's two distinct areas here. One is that the uh, the donors themselves, the patients, if you like, they, they retain ownership of, of their individual data and the knowledge um, that's gained from, from any insights into that data. But the second thing, which I think is maybe equally or maybe more important, um, hear your opinion, is the fact that that data is, is can, with their permission, be made more freely available. So there's there's, I guess, a couple of consequences. One would be... Um, more expert eyes on the same set of data and then maybe there's the opportunity to combine it with other data that's been kind of achieved in a, in a different study or in a different area for, for richer insights. Have I, have I got that? Yeah, those are, I think are the, are the benefits on a research side, right? Is that, is that it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty unlikely that um, even if you're working with people at Harvard or you know, Stanford or whoever, it's pretty unlikely that they've got the best data scientists in the world looking at it because the best data scientists in the world are working at hedge funds and uh, tech companies. Mm -hmm. uh, really hard to recruit them. I've heard starting salaries as high as a half a million for junior data scientists in the Bay Area. Starting salary, no equity, right? Um, how are you gonna get that person to, to work on your data you know, at a $40,000 a year postdoc salary? You're not. And so uh, it's just it's at an economic level, it's good sense to have more eyes on the data just for that purpose. Um, and then, yeah, the ability to combine data, because health is sort of intersectional, right? Health intersects with all of these. It intersects with our body and our DNA. It intersects with our diet. It intersects with our education, our finances, 
our social networks. Um, and so being able to link data from different parts of people's lives is probably going to be important to understanding us as people. Um, but it also, uh, the medical commons concept and, and, and the ownership piece, we hope carries other aspects. One is um, that it creates a social context in which we say data is not purely an asset to be bought and sold, right? It also creates, it has the contours of a public good in some cases. And, and so we at Sage are pursuing the medical commons as sort of the, you know, maybe it's the, it's the, it's the flank uh, of openness. Um, my, my bias on how things are going to work at scale is that, is that the medical commons will be a small piece of the puzzle. But I hope that by, by proving that you can do this in a commons, that you can do this innovative stuff by giving people some rights and some powers, that, um, that we see models, uh, we see competition for models as opposed to just bringing in the Google model, which is basically, you know, the, 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 the giant Hoover vacuum model. Um, my bias is, is actually that uh, I'd like to see data look a lot like, uh, I, gr I grew up with credit unions. I grew up in, in East Tennessee and my dad worked at the lab. And, <laughs> and so we had a credit union when I was a kid. And then, yeah, the idea of a member controlled collective that, that can kick people off the board if they violate the norms of the community, um, that strikes me as a, as, a, as a scalable organizational model to start thinking about data, which is, you know, you, know, you and I may agree on data, Ken Gordon and I may agree on data, well, we can all you know, be part of the same data credit union um, and, and that can manage our data for us because I don't keep my money under the mattress, I keep my money in the bank because I'm too mm -hmm. busy to manage my money. I'll probably be too busy to manage my data. But it would be nice if um, those people who were concerned about exploitation of their data could get it into a conservation-based trust. The people who uh, don't care and want to make money from their data can put it into something like a real estate investment trust. Uh, and the people who are more in the middle can, can, can form something that's community-governed. And, and so there's, there's issues with trusts. No organizational structure is perfect. But rather than like five or six dominant sort of monopoly scale giant companies like we have in tech, uh, I'd rather see more of a federated network of these community governed organizations because they just, they feel more likely to represent what people want. And, and if some of those want to be in mine, which is a commons and give stuff away, then that's fantastic. But if they don't want to be in a commons, I'd like them to have options that are closer to their tastes than uh, take it or leave it, which is sort of where we are with, with, with tech data. So, so let's take an example that um, Sage is, is, has um, been deeply involved with it, which is this Empower study. You mentioned uh, Parkinson's and neurodegenerative diseases as being, you know, particularly in interesting opportunity areas, I guess, for data. So, I mean, can you can you just explain a little bit what what the Empower study is and uh, how it came about and where it's at? Sure. So. Um Empower is a study that we launched uh, about a year and a half ago. It was one of the first research kit studies that launched with uh, with Apple. Uh, so it was part of their keynote in March of, of 20, <coughs> 2015, which was a really cool experience, I can tell you, to actually be there for one of those. Um, and Empower comes from uh, the work of Max Little, Ray Dorsey, um, a lot of people at the University of Rochester who realized that, that you could take a lot, some of the core physiological examinations for Parkinson's disease that clinicians do in a laboratory. And you can begin to approximate or replicate or even improve on them in some cases using a phone. And so uh, Max uh, is a researcher over in the UK. 
um, realized that that simply from the way people spoke, you could get uh, you could begin to infer things about the muscle tone of their voice box and and and. You know, uh, in a very small study that you could actually diagnose Parkinson's from non-Parkinson's at a 90% accuracy rate just with people's voices. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the kinds of things that you look for in a clinic for Parkinson's are, are dyskinesia, right? Can you, can you tap inside circles uh, and how fast and how accurate are you, but eyeballing it? Um, they guess, you know, how well do you walk on a scale of one to five? What's your muscle tone like? Um, what are your symptoms like? And, and these are ancient tests technologically speaking these are you know tests that go back uh you know many 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 years that are very non-technical and the sensor is well you can actually quantify some of those things with the sensor on the phone right you can put the bubbles on a touch screen and instead of just getting a scale of one to five or a raw total count in a 30 second time period you can get uh, x and y coordinates you can get mean median maximum you could do this twice a day before and after l-dopa administration instead of doing it once or twice a year when someone comes into the clinic and a doctor watches them. And so the, the sense was, let's bundle all of those things up into an app and see if people will enroll. And if they enroll, let's see what kind of data we can get and if it's useful or not. And um, I, I can't talk too much about the scientific results because those haven't all been published yet, and, and I want to respect our scientific collaborators. But what's clear is that Parkinson's is a lived experience that changes enormously from day to day for the same person. And so you'll see like on just the tapping test, right? You'll see some people who start taking L-DOPA and so their, their taps in the morning, you know, they'll have a lot more taps in the afternoon after they've taken the meds. Um, but then they'll have these weeks where it gets worse when they take the medicine. Or it'll be, uh, or you'll have an individual who gets a benefit for three weeks and then the benefit just dis- disappears and they might as well not be taking the drug as far as this is concerned. Um, there's other people where they appear to get no benefit from the raw number of tapping, but when you dig into the higher dimensions of the data, it's clear that they get massive accuracy benefits from morning to afternoon after the drug. So, so what it begins to show you is that, that you know, health is personal. Experience of disease is personal. Lived experience is personal. And, and you can start to capture these lived experiences and aggregate them in, in, in ways that tell us a lot about disease that we didn't used to know. Um, you know, and the, there was one cluster in the Parkinson's study who um, uh, we would see their sensor data drop off a cliff uh, when they talked about race relations on the news. Right? And so clearly there was this external hmm. factor that was stressing them, right? And you would see right. words pop up like Ferguson or Baltimore or race uh, or some names of some, some for-profit cable news networks. Um, and, and, and so you could tell that, like, you could infer, like, hypothetically, that the stress of these things is probably the, the reason why their sensor uh, data drops off of a cliff after they, after they report these things. And so those mm-hmm. are the sorts of things that you can begin to get at when you can, you know, sample more often than once or twice a year, sample more deeply than a scale of one to five administered by an eyeball test, um, and give people sort of the decision about what they're going to contribute and when they're going to contribute. Got it. So I totally understand. I mean, it looks like you've, you've, you're already getting some insights. I totally understand that they're, they're not fully shareable whilst the study's in progress. Yeah, we've actually published the, the thing- data. We just can't publish yeah. some of the statistical results until they get oh, more got vetted. Oh, got it, got the, it, got the, it, got the, it. Yeah, like but, anyone uh, who's uh, listening uh, who wants to go get the, the first 10,000 people's data from this, it's already available. Great, great. One of the things I, I you know, I, I, I did dig out was, um, you know, a paper that actually I was really pleased to be able to immediately 
get my hands on and download, so you've made that freely available, thank you, was around just the enrollment, the, the basic setup of the study. And, and you'd mentioned before, for instance, that, you know, often there are, you know, multi-billion dollar investments made on the back of like an N of 2000, a traditional kind of approach maybe in the pharma industry. And I'm looking at data here where, you know, almost like 50,000 people went in and downloaded the app. Um, and then, um, you know, there was some drop off in terms of people that progressed through to being fully recruited. And But at the end of the day, you ended up at least on day one of the study, I think with appro approaching 10,000 participants who were both willing to participate in Empower, but also, um, you know, share their data more widely. Right. Um, you know, out, outside of that. Um, so that, I mean, that feels like an incredibly encouraging set of, set of data in terms of getting people into, into the study. It's a good start. You know, the, uh, it's clear that mobile enrollment gives you much larger numbers than, non than, than, than sort of traditional paper-based enrollment. Mm -hmm. But you, what you find is that you've moved the problem, which is, you know, from, a, from, from being a recruitment problem, how do we find 2,000 people? Uh, you find 20,000 people in, you know, two weeks. It's how do you keep them using the app? Um, right, right. And do you right. need to, right? Uh, there, and there are lots of really fascinating design questions here that are yet to be explored, I think. Um, because, you know, uh, you know, I use like four apps on my phone, right? I use phone. Mm -hmm. as, <laughs> as many as four. Yeah. <laughs> one of them's phone, right? That's actually the one that works right. the least a lot of the time, depressingly. But I use phone, messages, um, my browser, because I'm, I'm lazy and I use Facebook in my browser, and I use like another app that sort of alternates. And so for the last month, it's been Pokemon Go. Um, and, a, and a lot of the research shows that you know, people use three or four apps daily. And so mm -hmm. trying to be one of those four is really hard. And even Pokemon mm -hmm. Go is already tailing off, right? And so right. what we see is something similar. People are excited for several weeks. They, they're, they're, they're pretty engaged. And then their engagement starts to taper. And so... Um, now we're starting to ask questions like, uh, what are the things that keep people excited? What are the things that people like about these studies? Um, you know, how can we build on the sorts of engagement work that's been done in games? Right? So not gamification, right? but understanding how you know, relatedness, autonomy, mastery, purpose, you know, intrinsic engagement um, and, and motivation systems. Hey, how do we find those and bring those out to people? Because what we hear from our participants is that knowing they're helping is one of the reasons that they keep doing the stupid, you know, walk test. Uh, right, um, right. One of the other reasons is that they can watch their symptoms progress over time. Another one is that they can take some of these things to their physicians and have conversations about them. And so we have some tantalizing clues as to why people engage and how to keep working with them. But um, I think that there's, a, there's an entire multi-year design problem into thinking about... Um, how do we tell, how do we let people tell us why they're engaging and feed them the things that keep them engaged? Um, how do we detect when they're changing why they engage or, or how much they're engaging and offer them choices that are appropriate? And then how do we make sure that the data that comes off of those kinds of, of designs supports good science? Um, mm -hmm. we're, we're in the very embryonic phases of doing that right now. Um, and the good news is that most of the people that I know and work with understand and recognize that and are not invested in overhyping it. Um, uh, but it's, but it's a non-trivial class of problems. It's not a single problem. It's a class of problems. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I, I like following you guys and, and paying attention to the design chats that go on because it's going to take a lot more people than the ones who are in the space right now. Right, right. Well, I'm really pleased you've gone to this area of design because it's, you know, it's an obvious place for us to go in terms of, of the challenges within this whole space. And, you know, one of the things that was, was um, apparent from the, from the Empower data was not, you know, not just the fact that the, the, the recruit itself was successful, but also that there was this tapering of, of engagement from the participants um, during the process. And so the obvious, you know, the questions that, you know, we began to think about would be, well, why is that? And, you know, for us, design is about, you know, what are those emotional connections? How can I develop empathy with, with my user and design for that empathy so you make them experience meaningful? And it's, it's clearly relevant within this research context, but it's also relevant across a whole wide range of, of design challenges uh, inside and outside of healthcare. I mean, healthcare, no, healthcare's healthcare's design is just, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a good designer, I don't pretend to be one, but I've been lucky to work with a bunch of interaction designers in my, in my past. And so um, a huge amount of what I do has been deeply influenced that. So, you know, David Four and Libba and Jesse Dillon and the folks at Wondros are, are people that I've worked with and in some cases for. And um, health is like the opposite of a design space, right? It's, it's this system mm-hmm. where it's the anti-design and the anti-empathy, right? It's all built, baked into reimbursement of doctors. Uh, and so there's, it's, it's, it's almost painful because there's, you wonder where to start, but... You know, the work that we've done at Sage around informed consent is 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 nothing more than bringing basic interaction design methodology. Right? We did ethnography, mm-hmm. we did interviews, we did personas, and mm-hmm. and that's how we arrived at our process. And then everyone sort of celebrated it. And we're like, like this is you know this was obvious once you mm-hmm. do once you sort of work the problem this way. And and my my hunch is that that design is going to be as important to health as programming. Absolutely, uh, and we uh, we truly believe that in, in terms of the work we do and the challenges we're addressing. You know, one of, one of the ways to think about design is ensuring that the patient voice is adequately heard and adequately represented in, in the work that you do. And you know, so in in this field, right, we're talking about patient data getting represented, but that but that their voice is represented. And I can kind of think of a couple of scenarios here. One that you um, you referenced yourself directly in an article you you wrote with Dr. Eric Topol. Um, this uh, woman called Dana Lewis, um, who of course is is very kind of uh, leading edge uh, um, person with diabetes, using technology in a very un- advanced way, and kind of through an N of one experiment, you know, designed her own closed loop pancreas um, by connecting you know the data that she's coming out of, uh, getting out of a continuous glucose monitoring system with with an insulin pump, closed the loop. Um, and demonstrated much, much tighter glycemic control than she would otherwise been able to achieve. And that's clearly an extreme example, right? You've got an N of one, a very involved, active patient doing their own innovation. Um, but another example that really caught my attention came out of some work that uh, Dr. Brendan Spiegel was was um, undertaking at, at the Cedar Sinai, and it's a you know it's a vignette that he he portrayed around the danger of just relying on quantitative techniques was uh, I think it was some sort of observational study that was being conducted where they were um, tracking patients with RA undergoing some some type of drug regimen and they were fitting out these patients also with with activity trackers and asking them to report you know patient reported outcomes and they saw some really unusual things in the data and one of them was that um, they saw uh, one lady with a, a significant decline in activity during the course of the regimen. Um, 
but with significantly improving patient reporting outcomes, you know, completely counter to, you know, the intuition that, you know, lower activity must be, you know, due to kind of um, not doing so well. And so they decided to dig in and figure out what's the story, what is the patient story here? And, and what transpired was that this lady is a very keen writer. She likes to write, and writing requires her to sit at a desk for many hours at a time to be able to do that. And what she was previously finding was that she couldn't do that. It was too painful. She needed to get up, you know, um, get some movement into her joints. But under this new regimen, you know, she was able to sit, you know, in other words, you know, very little activity as reported by the, by the, the data device. Um, but, you know, fulfill her passion, and therefore her patient-reported outcomes are, um, were, were high. And so... You know, I think one of the challenges is, is absolutely recognize the value you can get from the quantitative inputs, but the danger is if you don't find a way to pull those kind of patient, qualitative, empathetic kind of insights in as well, that you, you, you run the risk of, you know, maybe thinking you found something, but it's not, not relevant to the people you're trying to ultimately design for. Yeah, there's, there's a famous probably apocryphal story of a um, a quant gaining access to EHR data and coming running up to the head clinician going I just found out did you know diabetes seems to be connected to insulin right <laughs> right or glucose right it's and I think that's right you know the my, my hunch is that um, if you look at chess right so like the world's best chess machines can beat the world's best chess players right for better or for worse but um uh, if you give an average chess player a chess playing program, uh, they can beat everybody, right? And so I think it's going to be this mixture of, of, of the quantitative and the qualitative of taste, empathy, experience being augmented by decision support that's sort of girded by data. Um, you know, that's, that's what I want to get to. And again, that's, that's kind of why I, I, one of the reasons we do what we do is that, is that, if we just import the sort of Amazon Google data model, right, that's not there, right? You know, Facebook just got rid of their journalism team and put engineers in charge of trending news. And within 12 hours, a fake news story was trending on Facebook. And, and this is, and then you had, I had friends who was like, well, what, what, if those enge- what if those engineers had journalism majors in college? I'm like, well, same reason I wouldn't want someone, a journalist who had a programming, a computer science major in college building my enterprise software. And, and so I, I think that this, this sort of culture of venerating the engineer or the data scientist above all is, is one of the things we want to prevent, right? We want to have that engineer working in tandem with community, with medical experts, with, you know, um, nutritionists, with, with doctors, with teachers, right? Like it's the, they need to be part of the team, not the decision makers, that's right. We've got to ensure um, that the insights that are being generated are based on some kind of clinical fundamentals, that they're not just, you know, huge number of data going in and you're seeing kind of, obviously, there's obviously going to be some kind of correlation in there and it's got to ultimately be, be drilled down to some kind of clinical insight and then ultimately connected back to the key stakeholders and that the patient's obviously a key part of that. That's right. So yeah, I think design um, is is absolutely a, a key aspect to this, and and uh, we're we're super excited to be to be part of this uh, new era. I think uh, a new challenge ahead of us. 
So, um, you know, kind of wrapping up. So one, one of the, the, the key things would be, you know, you create all of this excitement and maybe this is the time to comment maybe on, um, you know, some of the government side of things in the precision medicine. But there's clearly a lot of things going on in parallel. Um, you know, how, how do we know when we're getting it right? You know, what's our measure of success and what, what's your, you know, what's your time horizon for when you, you, know, you need to see results? So I, I'll, I'll, there's like three questions in there and I'm going to answer them out of order. I think the most important question you asked is how do we know when we're getting it right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't have an answer for that, but I think that figuring that answer out is probably the most important thing. Because the, the things that we measure constrain everything. And so measuring the way that we measure whether or not we're getting it right is going to have probably more downstream implications than almost any other question. And I think that's, that's, that's the question of the moment. Um, you know, the, the Precision Medicine Initiative here in the United States, you know, we're, we're a part of that at SAGE. We're a sub-awardee. Uh, I work on, on informed consent inside that. Um, you know, that, that initiative is going to go a long way to helping answer questions like how do we know when this is working um, it, because it's going out into a universe where the other comparable efforts are all closed and, and for the most part it's bringing in business models that are substantively similar to the technology industry um, I'd like to you know, sort of give credit to 23andMe they do let you download a copy of your genome uh, I wish they would let you use your API to push it out more flexibly, but I think we have to give them credit, right, um, for letting you for letting you do that. Um, but most of the companies that are out there are are looking for models where they can attain network effects because that's how that's sort of the dominant mental model of business right now. And so the Precision Medicine Initiative or PMI um, has a chance to sort of be the open source version of those things, right? It can be the red hat that 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 changes the market and regulates the market. But I think getting that question right of how do we know when we're winning is probably the first step to the PMI actually acting in that capacity and in that role. But I'm, I'm super excited about it. I can't wait to see what happens when we're able to start enrolling and, and, and see what kind of data, what kind of insights we can get. Um, you know, in terms of a time scale, I, get, uh, I used to be very confident making time scale predictions. I'm, I'm older now and I'm less confident making those <laughs> predictions, right? I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable predicting what will be for dinner um, at this point. But, you know, my gut is that, uh, sort of like I said earlier, I think that, you know, when it comes to neurodegeneration, I think that we're going to be able to measure that so much more accurately over the next three to five years using devices that are already available that, um, that I think that we may not have any new answers about neurodegeneration, but we're going to understand it at a much deeper level than we understand it today. I, I would be willing to make a, a prediction there that um, that we will be looking back at our classifications of neurodegeneration um, as being unbelievably primitive and um, and not granular at all within five years or so. Um, when it comes to being able to connect our genetic variation to our life, I you know I, I want to believe, right? I really want to believe that we're on the edge of of getting. You know, within five years to, to be able to, to do that. My, my, my bias is, however, that that's probably on more of a 10-year timeline. Um, and that's, that's where you know, the, the PMI here in the United States, the Cancer Moonshot, which is another uh, federal initiative in the U.S., the Biobank in the United Kingdom. You know, there's just an insane amount of sequencing going on in China 
through the the BGI that would used to be the Beijing Genomics Initiative, but now Institute mm-hmm. now the BGI. You know, it, it, it at a certain point over the last few years, we hit a tipping point in social data that allowed us to be targeted more accurately, and and it took you know five or six years of of operating at scale for it to start sort of working, right? But but the ads that I get at Facebook are sort of relevant to me now, and they didn't used to be, and way better than Amazon, for example, way better than than Google. And so my, my, my belief is that sometime in the next five or six years, there'll be a tipping point in, in sort of this data liquidity where um, things start to get measurably better. But I believe that that is mainly a function of how crappy things are now and not a function of how good things will be in five years. Um, I, I really think it's more on a 10-year timeline. I think we probably need another decade of boom and bust cycles uh, and investment and cheapening prices of, and ubiquity of sensors before before we start to see, most of us start to see meaningful benefits. But I think you will start to see in that five-year time period very specific advances in very specific areas because those areas are more susceptible to measurement and interpretation. Right. So, John, I'm hearing a lot of confidence, but maybe a lot of realism around the, the timeline that this is going to play out. Yeah, I mean, this is, it, we have to be, we ha, but I, we have to be very honest, I think. We have to try to be very honest about, you know, how bad things are today, like how, how imprecise our health systems are, um, that we're going to have a lot of disjointed moments in that time period where like I can imagine, uh, and when we were doing our ethnography around DNA sharing, for example, one of the comments that came up is, I can't tell if coffee is good or bad for me this week. Right? Is that going to be what it's like with my DNA? You're going to tell me that this gene is good for me this week and bad for me next week. And the only thing I could say to that person was, yeah, that's, that's actually probably what's going to happen. Uh, because we'll discover that this gene is involved and we'll think that it's in charge of and it'll turn out to be downstream of the thing it's in charge of. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just how it's going to be. But but I do think, again, I think in some of these areas, neuro, uh, certain kinds of cancers, that, that, that things are already moving fast enough to feel good that, that things are going to get way better. Great. Well, John, thank you so much. It's been a, been a real pleasure um, chatting with you this afternoon. So thank, thank you, you for so much for your time. Me. I appreciate it. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are being innovative repeatedly, getting from inspiration and ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and music, and we love hearing about how different people go about doing this. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Los Angeles, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. From our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. We thank you for your ears.